From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Shelley Jodouin, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. In this week's episode, we pulled a story from our archive by past Terra Informer Thasmia Nishat, where she talked to environmental activist Sapor Berman about bringing together activists and corporate interests. After that, we revisit the time we interviewed another prolific environmental activist, Dr. Vandana Shiva. But first, some headlines. Northwestern Alberta town is setting a new bar for energy efficiency. Valley View's town hall is set to become the first Passive House Plus office building in the world. Passive House is a voluntary certification for high efficiency design in building, heating, and cooling. Buildings with this certification consume up to 90% less heating and cooling energy than conventional buildings. The town hall is now under construction and when complete will house Valley View's town staff and town council. A study from the Center for Biological Diversity revealed that new oil wells in California are being approved predominantly in low-income areas and areas where demographics skew towards more people of color. The phenomenon is nothing new and is typically referred to as environmental racism by sociologists. More than three-quarters of new oil wells developed in California during the present governor's term are in these marginalized and racialized communities. Pollutants from these oil drilling operations have been demonstrated to cause cancer and asthma, among other health problems. Increased exposure to these toxic pollutants perpetuates financial insecurity for the residents as they have to deal with the consequences of health complications. Activists from sectors ranging from environmental to faith to public health have launched campaigns demanding that the state phase out or entirely halt oil and gas extraction and make commitments to protecting marginalized communities while also meeting Paris climate targets. A day after activists came together in April, more than two dozen scientists voiced support for the campaign. In more local news, the city of Edmonton has been charged seven times under Alberta's environmental protection and pesticide control legislation. Edmonton's deputy manager wrote in a statement that the city inadvertently sprayed a herbicide called Hivar XL on pathways in Tewilliker and Haddo neighborhoods. The incident happened on May 11, 2016, but was not reported at the time that city officials became aware of it, resulting in additional charges. The herbicide distributed by multinational pharmaceutical corporation, Bayer, specifies that the herbicide is not to be used, quote, immediately adjacent to cropland or desirable trees and shrub, end quote. The herbicide is designed for use on undesirable woody species on non-cropland or recreation sites, such as utility transmission lines, storage areas, and other industrial areas. The city's deputy manager said that all use of Hivar XL has ceased following the incident, but this is another incident contributing to greater public concern about the city's transparency regarding the use of potentially harmful chemicals. 
An audit in 2017 prodded the city to adopt greater transparency and to aim to have a publicly accessible geographic tracking system for all pesticide use by 2019. And now for this week's stories. Sapora Berman, a celebrated and seasoned environmental advocate, has perfected the art of collaboration. She was at the forefront of the Clayoquot Sound blockade, one of the largest acts of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Her successful campaigning convinced corporations such as Victoria's Secret, Scott Paper, and others to ditch old growth paper. She then helped protect an enormous section of BC's coastal rainforest from logging. Throughout it all, she was moving from the blockades to the boardrooms, bringing the sides together to find compromises that worked. So, can hippies and the man work together successfully? We thought Sapporo Berman would be the right person to ask. She visited the University of Alberta for a talk in 2014. In this interview with Terran Forma's Danielle Dolgoy, she recounts her history as an activist, shares some insight on pressing issues, and some lessons from the front lines. Currently, Berman works as an adjunct professor of York University Faculty of Environmental Studies. She's the former co-director of Greenpeace International's Global Climate and Energy Program and co-founder of Forest Ethics. Environmental awareness began at university. I was a university student at the University of Toronto, and I saw an image of the temperate rainforest, a slide that a professor showed in a geography class. And I couldn't quite believe that I didn't even know that Canada had rainforests. And I felt like I knew so much about Brazilian rainforests, and I, and I knew so little about Canada's forests and forestry. And I just fell in love with that image, and I decided I'd wanted to go see the rainforest. And I think with the naivete of being 23 years old, I spent all the money I had on a pair of new hiking boots and a, and a plane ticket and got a backpack and off I went to British Columbia. I didn't know anyone in British Columbia and I just you know wanted to see the rainforest. And I ended up volunteering for a group called Western Canwills Committee on the West Coast in the temperate rainforest. And they were building trails through the rainforest to try and prove that there were endangered species dependent on these forests and, and to try and slow down uh, the clear-cut logging. And um, I ended up volunteering and helping them build trails and, and helping do some scientific research in the rainforest. And I came back a second summer and the area that we'd been researching had uh, been entirely clear-cut logged. And I found out that it was being logged to make toilet paper and catalogs. These are thousand-year-old trees, some of the largest and oldest trees in all of Canada. And I got really angry. And I found out that there was a local community group, doctors and nurses and teachers up in Tofino who were organizing protests in Clackwood Sound. And I'd never been to a protest in my life, but I decided to go. And that's how I ended up getting started in, these, in this work. And what came next? Well, I ended up helping to coordinate the logging blockades in Clackwood Sound in 1993, um, which ended up being the largest civil disobedience in Canada's history. Um, I was arrested at the end of the summer and charged with 900 criminal counts of aiding and abetting, and I faced six years in jail. And um, 
luckily there were some great lawyers um, who uh, represented me. And we argued on a chart of rights and freedoms argument that you, you can't aid and abet civil disobedience, that I was making speeches and I have a right to free speech. And we won. Um, the trial was national news and got the attention of a lot of different organizations and Greenpeace um, offered me a job. And I started organizing with Greenpeace and I never looked back. I've been working for environmental groups now and running campaigns both on forestry and now on climate change, oil sands and pipelines um, since then, since the early 90s. Why is it that you're able to so be so successful in seeking a middle ground when it comes to forestry, but it seems like it's all or nothing when it comes to, for example, the Northern Gateway Pipeline. I, I think that we are going to be successful in forging collaborations with government and industry on energy issues. I think the protests and uh, the outrage that we're seeing right now uh, is because we have a system out of balance. We have policies that were designed to benefit the oil industry and not to benefit the environment and the majority of the people who live in Canada. And it's going to take a while to change that. Um, but I don't think it's the same as the work we did on forestry because I do believe that we need to work with in collaboration with people from industry in order to change our energy systems and address climate change. Um, but I don't believe uh, that there's going to be a way to make a greener pipeline. pipeline. I don't think um, I will ever support, uh, for example, uh, the Enbridge Northern Gateway or Keystone Pipelines. Because one of the things we know from the majority of the world's scientists, now from the majority of the world's governments and banks, is that we need to stop building fossil fuel infrastructure. That means pipelines, because they lock us into a dramatic increase in production of fossil fuels. So I'm not saying we're going to be able to shut down the oil sands overnight. That wouldn't be, I don't think, responsible or socially just. There are a lot of people whose livelihoods depend on the oil sands, but we shouldn't be expanding it. At this moment in our history, we need to be figuring out how to move away from fossil fuels. So that means capping it. It means cleaning up the impacts, which we know we can clean up, and figuring out how to transition out. So I hope to one day be in conversation with government and industry about how to diversify Alberta's energy system, how to invest more in renewable energy, how to ensure that Alberta has a more diverse economy that supports communities first and foremost and isn't designed just to support the profit margins of big corporations. Just as a, a final comment, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the way that you've sort of framed your approach in terms of um, cooperation as opposed to divisive or oppositional politics. I think all too often when people think about um, uh, activism or and environmental work, um, they have very distinct opinions on um, which tool to use. You know, well, well, we organize protests, or we do reports, and then there's those groups that you know will collaborate with industry. I think it's a mistake to think that you don't need to do all of that. There is no one uh, tool that's going to result in the change that we want to see in the world. I think right now, given the challenge that we face as a result of climate change um, and the dependence of our economy, especially in Alberta, on fossil fuels at a time when we know we need to move to more cleaner, uh, safer energy sources, both everyone from the World Bank to the United Nations to the Bank of England are now saying that we need to move quickly away from fossil fuels. That's 
an extremely challenging time. And it's going to take collaborations between industry and government and environmental groups and scientists and First Nations. It's going to take all hands on deck. You know, a lot of people, because I have been willing to sit down with industry and government and even sign deals with industry and government and work with them, a lot of people talk about how I've, you know, moved from conflict to collaboration. But in fact, um, I think we need both. I, I really do believe that um, the issues that we work on today are so complex that we're just not going to figure it out just through collaboration. Um, I, I, you know, I refer to in my book, This Crazy Time, I talk about my philosophy as one of radical pragmatism. I think we need fairly radical change in society. Uh, we've all benefited from the fossil fuel era, but now we have the technology to change. And change is hard, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. But So that's a radical shift that I'm talking about. But I'm pragmatic in that I realize we have to be able to identify the steps from here to there. And we have to work with the people who have the knowledge to make it happen. I'm not an engineer. Um, and I need to work with engineers. I need to work with the people in industry who have the capacity and knowledge to build the new energy systems. And so um, I want to do both. I um, expect that in the coming years, I will be one of those people who are dusting off their placards and marching in the street and trying to convince government through our protests to take climate change more seriously in Canada. Um, but I expect I'll also be um, working uh, with a number of people from industry and government to try and figure out how to move this country forward. That was a piece from the Terranforma archives where Daniel Dolgoy spoke with Sephora Berman. You're listening to Terranforma, broadcasting from CJSR 88.5 studios on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. Increasing interest and participation in local food systems, community gardens, and seed saving across the country is bringing concerns around food security to light. How we interact with the earth through planting and sowing seeds gives us some insight to understanding where our food originates. Dr. Vandana Shiva, physicist, ecologist, and author, visited Edmonton a number of years ago and Terran Forma was there. She spoke about seed freedom and commitment to the land. Her internationally recognized farmer advocacy work in her native country, India, has been expanded to a global scale. Terran former Yvette Thompson sat down with Dr. Shiva to learn about her work, seed heritage, and the paradigm shift that she sees as necessary for ecological and community well-being.
Dr. Vandana Shiva, the founder of Navdanya, a women-centered broad network of seed keepers in India, has been highly recognized for her achievements since 1993. Dr. Shiva began her path as a quantum theorist, studying at the University of Western Ontario here in Canada. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Shiva and ask her about food security and seed sovereignty. Was there an event or was there something that um, kind of changed your focus? Well, already before I left India, I had traveled to my favorite spots, wanting to carry the memory of my forests and streams with me. I'm from the Himalaya. And I found the forests were no more and the streams had gone. And um, that's when I realized how serious the ecological crisis was, the disappearance of the streams and forests. And um, I then found out there was a movement of women from the grassroots called Chipko, which means to embrace. And they had started acting to prevent their forests from being logged. So I made a commitment, even though I was coming to Canada to do my doctorate work and uh, the masters that was required to fulfill doctorate requirements, I decided to go back on every holiday and every vacation and volunteer with Chipko, which is what I did. So already Chipko had uh, woken me up to what was happening to our planet. And that the planet's crisis and the crisis of society was totally interrelated. Uh, came to me 1984, when India had the worst industrial disaster in the city of Bhopal, where a pesticide plant owned then by Union Carbide, now by Dow, leaked and killed 3,000 people immediately and 30,000 since then, and hundreds of thousands are born, crippled even today. But that same year, we had the rise of extremism in the state of Punjab, which is where the Green Revolution, which is chemical agriculture, was first applied. And the Green Revolution got a Nobel Prize, but Punjab was at war. 30,000 people had been killed there. And uh, by the end of 1984, I was asking myself, why is there so much violence associated with the way we are producing our food? And I then did the study on the Green Revolution, industrial agriculture. And uh, that made me commit myself to, uh, to work on sustainable agriculture, uh, both for people's rights, but as well as for ecological protection, because I could see the soils, the water, the biodiversity go. Because of that work, I got invited to a conference on biotechnology where the big giants laid out their grand plan, how they wanted to genetically modify seeds in order to take patents, which means ownership on seed, and they wanted to do this through a global treaty which would impose patents on seed everywhere. That's when I decided to start saving seeds and started Navdanya, the movement for seed saving. And I realized that the kind of threats um, that we resisted in India are now coming to Canada with this new Agricultural Modernization Act, um, C-18, which is a total rip-off. It is about seed monopolies. It has nothing to do with food security. It has nothing to do with farmers' livelihoods. It is only about ensuring that the only seeds available to farmers are seeds that industry provides. That actually brings me to a question. It's kind of a big question. What does seed sovereignty mean to you? For me, seed freedom, seed sovereignty are all the same words. Uh, and for me, seed freedom is first off the seed itself. Because seed is the ultimate expression of diversity. It's the ultimate expression of life. 
the ultimate embodiment of evolution. And, um, and seeds evolve. Seeds have a right to evolve. Seeds have a right to be diverse. And just as we don't want our brains to be filled with thinking from the outside, we want our brains to evolve. Uh, we want our communities to evolve. Seeds also have an urge to evolve in freedom. So the first freedom is the freedom of the seed, which is freedom of biodiversity. The second freedom is the freedom of farmers and gardeners, anyone who grows a plant, to have the freedom to save and exchange seed because this freedom is not just theirs, but it's also a duty to the earth because in saving seed, they're protecting the biodiversity. In exchanging seeds, they are sharing this abundance. And I would add, we need to add a third element, which has not yet been added adequately in um, discussions. Uh, we've done it through Navdanya. If you don't have quality seed with nutrition, with taste, then eaters also suffer. Because what industry has done is given us uniform seeds, which is nutritionally empty and adapted to their chemicals because it is the chemical industry that today controls the seed. Now, our bodies don't want those chemicals. And our don't, bodies can't deal with nutritional emptiness. They need nutrients. And if farmers and gardeners don't have those seeds, there is no way the food that comes from those seeds will be available to the eaters. So it is the right of the seed, the right of the grower, and the right of the eater. was really interesting uh, in your last book, Making Peace with the Earth, is how you you make a fairly strong call for a paradigm shift from this corporate sort of um, monetary wealth-focused economy to something that is more Earth-centric. What do you think is the, mo the biggest hurdle in making that switch? Yeah, I think the two big hurdles in making the switch. Uh, the first is the old paradigm itself, which is a mental block because it is based on fragmentation, division, separation, and reductionism, and the idea that the world is inert, that nature is dead. And that's the paradigm that comes from the way a very artificial idea of science was constructed as a reductionist mechanistic science. But this then also got applied to the way we think of what is the economy. Economy, after all, the same word uh, ha gave rise to ecology, which is the science of the relationships in a household. Um, and economy was the management of the household, but you can't have a management without the science. But we've now reached a stage where economy has been reduced to just money making. And that means a blindness to the real economies that sustain us and provide our well-being, the economy of nature and the economy of societies providing services and sustenance to ensure a good living. Today, that divorce from the real economy has created this situation where 
so much financial transactions are happening, 70 times bigger than the real economy, $3 trillion moving around in the world with speculation for profits, and it is destroying the real wealth in nature and the real wealth in society. Every step of privatization is guided by that false money wanting to make more money and that false wealth wanting to make more wealth. And that then brings me to the second block, to the transition and the paradigm shift. That is that some people have now made so much money out of this false constructions and illusions that have been created. And they were created by powerful men to make money. But today, over the last two, three hundred years, that process has left us with the fiction of a corporation as a person. How could we as humanities be so insane that we can take a contract and we take, can take a legal form and say, this is a person, it's like me, suddenly announcing that um, the contracts that bind our relationships have a higher status than the relationships themselves. After all, what is a corporation but a business? And a business is supposed to be embedded in society. And the primary persons are the people and citizens of a society. But today, we've given the fictitious corporation personhood, made it more powerful than real human beings, influencing the way we run our democracies, stealing our democracies, stealing our resources, stealing the capacity of human beings to both provide for themselves and be free. And the power of corporations today has become so abusive that they are both the biggest block to the planet's well-being as well as the biggest block to society making choices in ways that we can ensure a decent future. If we do take the focus away from the corporations, um, what does that look like for you? What does, what does that <laughs> world look like? <laughs> well, for one, it'll be a very diverse world because that is the nature of the planet. Uh, the, the Earth is just bursting forth with the expressions of diverse form. And we, as humans, when we work with the Earth and uh, we work with that diversity, we can actually enhance it. I see the world 20 years from now creating gardens everywhere, not burying everything in concrete or drilling and mining every piece of the earth. Gardens everywhere would also provide the needs, but gardens everywhere as a metaphor for sustainability, for peace, for love, and of course, the choices that we make to make that shift possible 50 years from now would create truly democratic society. archive from 2014 where Yvette Thompson spoke to Indian food security and environmental activist Dr. Vandana Shiva. We hope you've enjoyed our show this week. If you want to hear more stories like this one, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for past episodes. Have you ever wanted to be on the radio or meet your favorite host from the show? 
Terranforma is recruiting. If you want to join our show and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terranforma.ca. Back to school is the perfect time to try something new, so give us a try. Terranforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, and Sophia Osborne. I've been your host, Shelley Jodelain. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.